Thank you, team. You guys are just awesome. Every week you're taking it up a notch and welcome everyone from uh, me as well. So today we start off with a little story. The story goes relating to the end of the world as we talk about the honesty of not yet and the faith for more. And today's topic is earth and heaven. The story goes that apparently God got fed up with humanity, its sins and its politicians. And so he decides to end the whole experiment of creation. And so he brings together all the heads of state and announces that he will destroy the human race and creation within 24 hours. And he ends by saying to uh, the heads of state, I leave it to you to announce this to your respective people. And so the first to speak, funny enough, is South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. My fellow South Africans, we must be informed by the facts as we have them. I have one item of good news and one of bad news. The good news is that God exists. He spoke to me, but we already knew that. The bad news is that our rainbow nation, our great dream, will disappear in 24 hours. Africa. Vladimir Putin, on the other hand, brought together all the Russian folk and he said, compatriots and comrades, I have two items of really bad news. The first is that God exists. And yes, he does. I spoke to him. And the second is that our wonderful revolution that we have fought is over. And then the American president called a news conference and he said, Today is a very special day for all of us. I have two really good items of news. The first is that I am a messenger of God. And the second is that within 24 hours, yes, you've heard right, 24 hours, read my lips, tax will be zero. The pandemic will be stopped. Unemployment will be over. The financial crisis will be finished. And I'll be the greatest president ever. Ask anyone. You see, the end of the world triggers very different responses. And as we saw last week, the book of Revelation is not nearly as much about the end of the world and its great destruction as it is about its recreation and deliverance. You see, God hasn't changed his mind from the declaration he made in Genesis 1 that creation is good and it, it, it becomes very good when there are people made in his image who govern on his behalf. And so we've been looking at some of the paradoxes of the kingdom and today we look at another one. It is both earth and heaven, on earth as in heaven, the creator comes to creation. So one of the first things we notice in the book of Revelation is that creation worships and is a reason for worship. So for example, in Revelation 4 verse 11 we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will they were created. Some translations, for your pleasure they were created. They have their being. Earth brings God delight, pleasure. It was his plan, his purpose. He's never abandoned it. Heaven affirms the earth even as earth honors heaven. The earth is not 
in the Bible's mindset, a horrible mess that we're all just trying to escape. Rather, the earth, as part of creation, is a cathedral, a temple, a theater of praise. And sometimes the earth and creation is the choir and the orchestra as well. I encountered a bit of this on Monday morning when I ended up in the middle of the Oval, which for those who don't know is a sports field in Pinelands. And I turned around to see the sun lighting up the underside of the clouds in a sunrise. And there was gold and orange and purple and red. The colors were dark and some of them were bright and light. And they were being painted against this canvas of pale blue. And I thought I'd take a photo, but I realized I hadn't brought my phone. So it occurred to me then that I wanted the picture, not just as a reminder, but I, I didn't want to lose the moment. I wanted to have it. I wanted to own it. I wanted to possess it. And then funny enough, I would have probably just put my phone in my pocket and carried on running. But without it, I, I couldn't capture it. I couldn't possess it. And so I realized then what I was meant to do there all along. I was never meant to own that moment. I was meant to receive it and give it back to the one who had given it to me. And so I began to worship the, the one whose genius and beauty was touching me through creation. And as I stood there, virtually not another person on the field, for about 10 minutes, I just let my senses, my mind, my heart, my spirit drink it all in. I listened to the orchestra and began to join the choir of creation. And if you will open your eyes, you will see what scripture affirms that heaven pervades the earth. God is always right here, always right now, always. And so creation becomes a place and an arena and a context and an expression of worship of God. Second thing we find, and this is going to be our main reading, is that creation destroyers will be destroyed. So I want to turn to Revelations chapter 6 this time. We were in Revelation 5 last. And, and Revelation chapter 6. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1. We're kind of in the PG version now of Revelation. But it should be okay. As I watched, the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And the Lamb opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures.
sorry. A voice among the four living creatures saying, a kilogram of wheat for a day's wages and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages. And don't damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there before me was a pale horse and its rider was named Death. And Hades, or hell, was following close behind him. And they were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, so the throne room of heaven has in a sense become a temple, because now there's an altar. I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And as I watched, he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. I wouldn't know what they looked like, but apparently it's very black. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, the slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks in the mountains. And they called on the mountains and on the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Okay, I trust that was like totally crystal clear. You know, normally we say, uh, hear the word of the Lord, and everyone says, Amen. This time we kind of go, what the heck? Now you've really lost me. Well, let's admit that we're heading into some of the most complex and mysterious parts of the book. Most of us, when we get to chapter 6, so like read a little bit and then we just like, like sort of jump to chapter 21 and 22, which are admittedly beautiful and amazing and magnificent. And they're describing earth and heaven, our theme for the day, coming together. No temple because God is everywhere and he's lighting up everything. But chapter 6 through 16, especially, is pretty hard work. And, and they contain three sevens of judgment with a big bracket in the middle, chapters 12 through 14. And there's seven seals, seven trumpets, and then a set of signs and symbols that, that map history, and then there's seven bowls. Now, the best way to look through at those sevens is, is to think of how music is written down. Music is not like a book where you start reading from left to right at the top, and then you go to the next line, and you read that in sequence, and you go to the next line, and you read that in sequence, and so you play the, the treble clef and the bass clef and then some of the orchestral clefs, etc. No, no, no. That treble clef, that bass clef and all the other additional lines 
are played at the same time. You're looking at things that overlap, and often they're played as chords. And so what you're hearing are things that are occurring in life. This is the stuff of life that is being described. And although the parts and the lines are different and they're played by different instruments, they make up the same piece. Or maybe simply more understandable to someone like Mike Jones is the famous conversation between Shrek and Donkey. He says, ogres are like onions. Both have layers. And you have to open up this thing beneath the surface events to understand what is going on. Same onion, different layers, same story being told, different instruments, different levels. And so at a risk of oversimplification, what we're seeing is, is the, the great story of purposed history from uh, fall to recreation. And, and what we are seeing, for example, in the seals, the judgment of the seals, is, is the focus is on the human impact and consequence, including things like the military and the economy. In the trumpets, it's the earth, the environment, the waters, the sea, the cosmos that suffers. And obviously, there's some overlap. And you get to the, the, the symbols and the signs, and you meet a woman and a dragon and a baby and the people of the lamb and, and a beast, and then a beast has a sidekick, and, and so it goes on. And, and this is the retelling of, of, human, of history in the light of the role and influence of Satan and, and his uh, dominion. And then the bowls, as it were, bring these together. They mention things like the demonic and the satanic woven into the human history. And as it were, it's a compression bringing all these things together. So the, passages, the passage I've just read describes the releasing of the consequence of sin uh, out of human behavior. And the judgment of God and of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. Remember, wrath is love's fury. That will overcome all that opposes love. And is when God hands over the earth, its creatures and its people over to, and notice this, only some of the consequences of their actions. Part of this consists, as you, these images of these horses that just take off, of handing us over to powerful spiritual beings that we partner with when we sin. And like running horses, they carry what we sow by our sinful actions into the world. And so there's this conquest driven by military conflict. This is unlikely to refer uh, to the conquering King Jesus, um, the Word of God, and the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords later in the book. This is, this is the consequence and judgment of sin. This isn't the release thereof. And then there is human violence and people taking lives. There's... There's oppression and economic exploitation where basic commodities are hopelessly overpriced for the poor and yet the rich make sure that their, their oil and their new wine is completely okay. And then there's this death in deeply traumatic ways through famine and plague and, and a whole host of other things, including the breakdown of human society to the extent that wild beasts are... Um, are once again, as it were, making prey of human life. And then step five is a restraint from God. We see that part of this, at 
the same time, in the same peace, is an action of God to delay judgment. The righteous are begging God to do more, to overthrow all this darkness, all this chaos, all this consequence. But they are told to wait because their number is not complete. In other words, more may be brought to life, to, to the life of God, by the action of God's patience. And then there's an earth-shattering event that, that causes the earth to encounter the Lamb and His fury. And if you read on into chapter 7, you see a pause then in the judgment process. Even the land, the earth, the sea, the trees are spared because the servants of God, His prophetic people, faithfully emerging out of the Old Testament, as we saw last time, are now from every tribe, people, language, and nation. And they are beyond counting. And as you read on, you discover, importantly, they have all been through the great tribulation, the great suffering. All of prophetic Israel, now from every nation, have endured the suffering, the tribulation, the collateral damage of being handed over to just some of the consequences of our actions and of sin. And then we move to the trumpets, and there's the signs and the bolts, and it's the same story playing out, but now at deeper, more sinister levels. And so judgment must go deeper, and judgment, as it were, gets, gets intense and personal, going after the powers behind the human behavior. The top, as it were, is the symptom, and underneath are the drivers, underneath are the powers. And you're no longer just dealing with human action, but the powers that feed off the abdicated authority of people who no longer do the will of God. And eventually we're confronted by Satan himself, the accuser, and the powers that align with him, both seen and unseen, personal, political, social, and structural and God's seventh trumpet holds a promise that because of God's judgment, the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. And that was point two. And so we read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, in echoes of Psalm 2, the nations rage, the nations are angry, but your wrath has come, and the time has come for the judging of the dead, for the rewarding of of your servants, the prophets, and your people who honor and revere your name, both great and small, and then this line, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. You see, creation matters to God so much that He will take on everyone who steals, kills, and destroys. So now in all this imagery and detail, don't miss the headlines. Judgment is certain. Right and wrong matter. And God's going to fix this thing. Judgment is partial. God leaves room for redemption. Like in the Old Testament image, there's a remnant that can emerge who will become his people. And it's not a tiny little group. It's a mass of humankind brought into the favor and the blessing of God. Judgment is certain. Judgment is partial. Judgment is paused. 
because God is waiting for more people to receive the seal of belonging to him. And you need to know that God is being patient with us. And you have an opportunity, if you have not yet done so, to submit and surrender your life to the one who surrendered his life in love for you. His name is Jesus, and he has paid the ultimate price to see you forgiven and come home. And so we see in this space the opportunity to make right with God. And we are all, we're not exempt, we're all simultaneously in the great suffering and in the glorious reign of King Jesus. And so when John's introducing the letter in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in, listen to this, the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. In Jesus, we have suffering, we have kingdom, and we have the ability, we have the faith to patiently endure whatever we encounter. And whether we encounter, as it were, the grief of suffering or the joy and power of kingdom, it doesn't shake us because we are in Jesus. And John hadn't messed up he wasn't less spiritual. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day, but he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This tension has got nothing to do with your personal righteousness. There is suffering for our own sin. But all of us feel the tension of a world that is now and not yet. Honestly, honestly, not yet. Honestly, honestly, now. And there's a patient endurance that comes to those who will hold those. So now I just want to finish with some of the implications. The first one is this, that life and creation are precious to God. God believes the earth is world, uh, the world is worth redeeming. It's also why he will destroy the destroyers. And when this happens, yes, the world experiences what Jesus describes as the birth pains of its deliverance. One of the things that this means, way back to Genesis chapter 2, that creation care, sustainability, restoration, and Sabbath are part of our mandate. We look after creation because God wants it to flourish. Second thing is that there can be no human flourishing on a dying planet. We cannot biblically destroy the planet and then claim a kind of spiritualized salvation. The destiny of the earth and its people, deeply intertwined, it's earth and heaven, heaven and earth. The third is that life in creation is precious, but not absolute. Jesus refuses, as much as he values the world, I mean, he wouldn't heal people if he didn't care about their bodies. As much as he values our bodies, as much as he values the world, he refuses to let the world become our everything. So in Matthew 16, verse 26, he says this, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Yes, the earth is valuable. Precious, precious. 
but its greatest destiny and glory is the marriage of earth and heaven. And that comes later in the book. And so missionary and martyr Jim Elliot famous, famously wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Sometimes we need to think deeply about the things we are so desperate to keep. What is it that Jesus offers us that we cannot lose? Number four, the kingdom is both natural and supernatural. You know, when we first encounter the kingdom of Jesus, we might be tempted to think it's all just so mind-blowingly supernatural. It's healing and deliverance and miracles. And I mean, he even performed some lockdown miracles. I mean, he turned, for example, water into wine, which apparently some of you are hoping will happen. And it was the stuff that he pointed out to John the Baptist when John wanted to know, are you really the Messiah? Yes, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, good news is preached to the poor, and so much more. And so, of course it's true, a life of faith is profoundly supernatural. It's what Jesus modeled. But the kingdom is also wonderfully natural. It's grounded. And so learning... The creation-affirming realities of rest, of sustainability, of the value of life, of rhythms that heal and make things whole. So author and theologian Tom Wright says that in the West, we've mixed up this natural and supernatural. And, and we popularly define miracles as, quote, intrusive acts of an absent God. Intrusive acts of an absent God. God is kind of breaking in where he doesn't belong. <laughs> Nature is a closed system. And, and God is this exotic force. No, no, no. Jesus had such a different view to us. You see, for someone living like Jesus, by the presence and the power of God, a supernatural life is completely reasonable. It makes perfect sense. John's vision shows us that heaven and earth and earth and heaven are interfacing, mixing, blurring, merging, interacting, layer after layer, line after line. And the story is one story, but there's so much more going on. So here's another paradox. That those who like Jesus learn to live by the pervasive presence of God will live to see the most invasive acts of God. That makes sense? Think about it. Those who live so conscious of the pervasive presence of God. This is how Jesus lived in relationship with the Father by the present power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Those who are filled with God and He pervades them and them and satisfies them. They are the ones who most see what others will think of are the invasive acts of God. Yet for them, it's perfectly reasonable. It's not irrational. Of course, it's mysterious. But it's one of the most obvious things to turn to and expect. And so what we see when we learn creation through God's eyes is that there's a faith and an expectancy 
Because this world has become a temple. This life has become a place of meeting with God. You see, those who carry and host God's presence within nature, on this earth, the dust of the earth, the breath of heaven, those who host His presence, those who carry His presence, those who honor the presence of God within nature, get to see God again and again surpass nature. So as we come to understand this kingdom, this kingdom sees heaven coming to earth. Through us, naturally, naturally, supernatural. Don't know about you, but I find myself wanting that. I find myself wanting to be on the, the right side of the wrath of the Lamb. I find myself wanting to be in a place where, as it says, and, and, and we will reign. We will reign with our authority no longer abdicated, but restored. Our partnership no longer with dark forces, but with Him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. So why don't you close your eyes? Just get yourself comfortable. Sit quietly for a moment. Just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Hmm. Earth and heaven. Heaven and earth. There's a, there's a marriage coming. There's a connection coming. And one day it will be complete. One day we'll see him as he is. One day we'll fully know. But now we do know, but we know in part. It's not perfect, but it can be real. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. say if anyone really yeah or just partly <laughs> feels that you you know you need to talk to someone you know you need to pray please will you call you can you can click on the Facebook messenger I'll pick up your message you don't have to do it on the chat on the side just the actual messenger function I'd love to make connection with you can, we can make sure that if God has been speaking to you, challenging you, and, and for those who you just know you're longing to deal with some of the distance that's grown between you and God, and it's really hard for you to, 
to see how God is present with you at a time like this. I just want to say, God's being especially patient for your sake. Remember that judgment is paused. It's paused. It's waiting. It's being told it can't proceed because God wants to seal you, mark you, define you with his salvation and his love. So I bless you in Jesus' name to let heaven come to earth even now in you.